Over the last several weeks, I have been closely following a case, a legal case, um, through the news outlets and on my iPad. There's been an enormous lawsuit, uh, a battle, if you will, being waged all over the world between two uh, tech giants, Samsung and Apple. Have you heard about it? Uh, several days ago, uh, one of those uh, lawsuits was actually settled. A verdict came in here in the U.S., and the uh, Apple company was awarded over $1 billion in damages from Samsung. Uh, pretty large settlement uh, finally came in. As a follow-up to the verdict and uh, uh, the finalization of the settlement, some paperwork had to be filed. Included in the paperwork was attorney's fees. Just this last week, I read an article in which they printed and detailed the attorney's fees. Fees for the lawyers involved in the different uh, uh, motions and uh, research, etc. And as I scanned through the, through the list, uh, the number, of us, uh, as you can guess, was, was pretty sizable. But what caught my attention was the hourly rate uh, for the attorneys. At the bottom of the list was a paralegal. Uh, in, the, in, in this particular paperwork, um, paralegal was used in the filing of three motions in support of the case. And uh, she had, uh, it was a girl's name, their name's there, uh, 15 billable hours, 15 and a half billable hours. Can you guess what her hourly rate was? Uh, actually, it's quite modest. $195 an hour was her hourly rate. Um, she was at the bottom of the list. Near the top of the list, uh, the more established lawyers uh, had an hourly rate of uh, over $1,000 per hour. And um, uh, it's not uncommon. That's not necessarily the money a lawyer gets paid, but it's the billable rate at which they will bill the companies. And as I was looking at that and seeing the difference and scanning that, uh, I wondered about being a lawyer, what it would take. Perhaps <laughs> some of us find ourselves in the wrong profession. Um, uh, quite, a, quite a jump and as an hourly rate. Uh, I have from time to time tried to calculate my hourly rate, and I usually quit. Uh, it's not encouraging when you think about the hours that you have worked probably in your office or in your job and how much you actually get paid. And I thought about that. Over $1,000 an hour seems, wow. How much would it take to become a lawyer? And why are they worth so much? Uh, it's because they're experts in doing things that... Average human beings like you and me, except for those of you that are lawyers, cannot do. And that's to distill uh, uh, information from a very complex set of words which we call laws. Lawyers are highly regarded in society by most people <laughs> because they're, they allow us to accomplish certain things that we cannot do without their help. And that is to settle differences of opinion in the areas of justice and order and civility. But, as you probably have already guessed, not everyone likes lawyers. If you look in your yellow pages, uh, I think lawyers outnumber doctors. Uh, it's a pretty sizable. There's, there's quite a bit because we live in a very litigious society. People need all kinds of lawyers for all kinds of different things. And even within the profession, some are more highly regarded than others. But they are necessary to understand. They're experts. 
uh, they are necessary in order for us to carry out doing what we do, sometimes like Apple and Samsung, to determine the differences. Now, they don't make the decision, but they help inform the decision. And like I mentioned to you, whoops, they are experts in figuring out complex situations. The Bible tells us a story about a lawyer. I don't know how much he was worth, but his story is worth our listening and paying attention to. If you've brought a Bible, please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, and we will read in chapter 10. The book of Luke tells us a story about a lawyer. Chapter 10, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew right in front of you. You can uh, pull that one out and follow along with us, uh, book of Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> we will begin on verse 25. The Bible tells us in verse 25, Luke chapter 10, that on one occasion, an expert in the law, read lawyer, uh, stood up to test Jesus. Now, this phrase is not uncommon in the New Testament because from time to time, as Jesus was teaching, explaining himself, and, and, and bringing to light some understanding on who God was, there were people in the audience who would, from time to time, raise questions to challenge Jesus' understanding. And in this particular case, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, and he said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, one point of clarification here. In Jesus' day, an expert in the law would have been a religious figure. Unlike in modern times where we separate church and state, and by and large, lawyers deal with civil issues, uh, courts of the, uh, issues of the court system, not necessarily not necessarily religious issues, although from time to time these two things come uh, into conflict. In Jesus' day, an expert in the law would have been an expert in the religious law. This person would have been more like a, a, a pastor, a preacher, a priest, someone who worked in the church, someone who was well-versed in the Hebrew law. But a lawyer, nonetheless, in that sense that he was an expert, he had studied, probably had been chosen early due to uh, the family he was born to or perhaps the circles in which his family run to, to, to be a part of this educational system that would produce experts in the law. And this particular one stood up to test Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's not actually an outrageous question. In fact, it's a question that most people ask at some point in their journey, and probably you have, or maybe you've been asked the question, maybe by a child, except that we phrase it slightly different. We would say, what do I do to get to heaven? How do I get to heaven? Maybe your son, your daughter, or friend has asked you that. Do you believe in heaven? How does one get there? This expert in the law said, essentially, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was well-versed in the Bible. He had been versed in the Old Testament um, prophecies, well-versed in the Old Testament promises. And here he asked Jesus, how do we get there? And Jesus replied, verse 26, what is written in the law, capital L, and how do you read it? It's fascinating the way Jesus deals with, with personalities. 
In this particular instance, he was center stage, so he was, uh, he was teaching, and, and, and somebody raised their hand and, and asked a question. Uh, now, there are some teachers in the classroom, I mean, in our, in our church today, and um, uh, some teachers, most teachers usually like questions. Some teachers don't particularly like questions, or maybe questions from certain individuals. Because there's always somebody in the class, am I right? There's always somebody in the class who doesn't want to learn, but rather defy. Maybe that's you. Maybe that was you in school. Constantly trying to undermine the teacher's authority by asking questions that, that create confusion or, 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 or that uh, uh, bring other matters into the fray. And this particular lawyer, being an expert in law, stands up and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, okay then. What does the book say? How do you read it? Fascinating, fascinating. He's so smart, Jesus. I, I, I don't know. He's so smart. The gentleman asked the question, and as you can tell from the, from the anecdote here, uh, the author of the book says he stood up to test Jesus. And, and I, I like that phrase because it's a phrase that unmasks most of us. See, here, here's, the, here's what I mean by that. More often than not, in your journey and in my journey, we have come to a place where Jesus says, and we are not sure we want to buy in. So we want to test him. We want to say, I don't know if I agree with that. We don't believe in his authority to tell us, and so we want to bring some point of discussion to the debate to undermine his authority. We want to test him. We want some proof or we want some evidence. We want to test. And Jesus was teaching and the man said, now hold on a second. And he wanted to test him. Now, I mentioned this was common because it happened to Jesus quite a bit. And, and just to give you some background, it's quite possible. This, this particular lawyer was affiliated with several others, which we call the Sanhedrin, a group of religious experts who didn't like Jesus at all. In fact, the Bible tells us that they were planning and plotting to get rid of him. And they wanted to find some legitimate reason, some legal reason to put him away. Something to accuse him with that would stick in court and thus bring him punishment. So from time to time, maybe they schemed together. It's possible that he had been part of a plan. It's also possible that he was acting on his own. Nevertheless, the Bible says that he stood up to test Jesus, and he said, what must I do? And Jesus says, you tell me. Don't you just love that? Jesus said, huh, why don't you tell me? He knows. He's smart. He understands the man's intention, and he says, well, what do you think? Actually, he doesn't say that. He says, what is written in the book? How do you read it? It's a big difference. In our culture, in our, in our society, even within our church, there's a strong tendency to try to answer matters of Jesus' authority with a, this is what I think solution, rather than what does the book say? We have this tendency to want to lean on what our judgments would lead us to rather than to what the book says. But Jesus unmasks this and he says, 
What does the book say? You know what book? This book. What does this book say? Oftentimes as a pastor, when I meet with individuals who are struggling with a decision, they say, Pastor, I'm not really quite sure what to do. What would God want me to do? What do you think? It's a trap sometimes because the minute you say something, you put yourself out there. And, and Jesus says the logical answer is to say, what does the book say? How do you read it? Fascinating. Because most of the time, we have made up our minds based on what we want. And what this lawyer wanted to do was to catch Jesus in a moment of blasphemy or some other position of weakness. And he said, what's in the book? What do you, how do you read it? And the man answered with this quote, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Have you heard that before? Uh, uh, the people sitting in the congregation, the audience that day, would have recognized that easily. It's, a it's an Old Testament quote from the book of Deuteronomy and from Leviticus. In fact, if you were a, 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 an upstanding Jewish citizen, you would recite these things early in the morning like a memory verse, a model for life, if you will. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's fascinating because in his answer, in his answer, he reveals truth, but that is not what his heart believed. So he says, love the Lord God with all your heart. That would be the correct answer. And Jesus responds as such, and he says, verse 28, please follow along with me. You have answered correctly. You have answered correctly. This wasn't always the case when people try to test Jesus. In fact, when it would come with some sort of scenario, some sort of uh, 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 you know, trap, and it came repeatedly, and he would put it back to them, they weren't always ready to give in to the right answer. But Jesus says, how do you read the law? And the man says, love your God with everything and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you got it. Correct. And then he adds, do this and you will live. So I want you to stop for just a second as we examine uh, the, the conversation here. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you are uncertain about the will of God? When you are concerned about the step that you're going to take, whether it's a decision to accept a job, enter into a relationship, abandon one, or deal with some other challenge, and you don't know what God would want you to do, and you have asked yourself, what is God's will for me at this time? How do I respond to this situation? How do I come through this as a Christian? And Jesus says, what does the book say? And the book says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's the right answer. And I know because I've had conversations with some of you about how difficult it is to actually take that, which you know, you've memorized, you've heard all your life, and make it fit over your own life. How does one do that? Let me ask you the question. How does one love God with all your heart? What does that look like? See, because it's easy enough to repeat it, or even to pretend that you do it. 
I love God with all my heart. But what does that look like in reality? I love God with all my strength. Well, how do you do that exactly? I love God with all my mind. How? Are all your thoughts on God? This lawyer answered correctly, said, love God with all of these things. And, and it would have been simple for him to explain what these things meant because in their system, they had deciphered specific ways by which to fulfill this requirement. To love God with all your strength, in their explanation, as outlined in their book of rules, was to abide by certain specified behaviors and avoid others. But the list, though long, was finite. That means they had tried to spell out as many situations that could be explained, and then you had to behave by that code. Anything outside of the code was not important. It was finite. Love God with all your mind. And this one was much easier because they could claim, I have studied, I have learned, I'm an expert. So my mind is completely devoted to God. And yet you and I are smart enough to know that the mind is so hard to control. Amen? Have you ever tried not to think of something? Yeah? Have you ever been in a situation when someone says, just clear your mind? Don't think about that. Just forget about it. And the more you try to forget it, the more it's there. Have you ever tried to avoid thinking about something or someone knowing that it wasn't good for you to dwell on this subject or maybe on this person and had difficulty controlling your own mind? Have you ever found yourself thinking about something that you know God does not approve but still being obsessed about it? Yeah, because that's the way we are. And the funny thing is, no one else knows. See? You could sit here today, or I could stand here and say, yes, I love God with all my mind. But you would never know the truth, because you can't get in here. Only you know the truth, and God for the experts of the law and for the person making this assumption at this moment, it was easy. He said, oh, love God with all your mind. Why? Because, sure, I'm doing that already. You're never going to know the truth, so I can tell you whatever I want. In fact, if I tell you long enough, I'll start to believe it myself. But what does that really look like, to love God with all your mind? Theologians say it means with your intelligence, with your intellect. That means you have given at least time and energy to think about God, to learn with your intellect information about who God is. And let me clue you in on something. It's impossible for you to learn with your intellect who God is if you are ignorant about the book. The gentleman answered, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
with, with whatever that you do, but he had a defined list of things that had to be done. And it's funny because thousands of years later, we, especially those of us that are in the Adventist church, have a very similar list. We have through experience and through uh, some misunderstanding of who God is, come up with a list of acceptable behaviors that Seventh-day Adventists do and Seventh-day Adventists don't. And we carry this list tucked away in, inside ourselves and then we use it to measure others to see whether or not they're truly Adventists. I don't know what if you've ever encountered this, but I remember growing up distinctly and introducing my family to friends of mine, and they would say, the first question out of their mind would be, are they Adventist? And I would say, uh, yeah. And then they would say, then why are they doing, and then they would enumerate something. Could have been something that they were wearing. Could have been some particular food that they were eating something that didn't fit into the list and would allow my relatives to scratch them off the acceptable list. And for the gentleman asking the question, they had a long list, but there was a, it was a finite list of requirements that, that would, would satisfy that one, to love God with all your strength, with all your physical ability. And it would, it would mean for them to abstain from certain foods. It would mean for them to only walk a certain distance on the Sabbath. It would mean for them to only exert a certain amount of energy during certain things and not others. It was, it was a very defined, well-defined list. And so he felt quite comfortable in answering Jesus, love God with all your strength, because in his mind he had convinced himself that in fact that was a requirement that he had kept. Notice, because when Jesus gives him the answer, go and do that Jesus is saying, apply those principles to love God with everything, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He, the lawyer, didn't ask the question I asked. How do you do that? The only question he asked was, just who exactly is my neighbor? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think? Love God and love your neighbor. And the man took it for granted that he loved God completely. His question was, well, just who exactly is my neighbor? Look, right there. The man asked because he wanted to justify, and he said, who is my neighbor? For point of clarification, uh, since Leviticus, they had had this uh, phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and for a good Jewish person, the definition of neighbor would have been, listen carefully, a fellow practicing Jew. For them, the definition of neighbor would not just have been someone of my same ethnicity. Although, truth be told, in our modern day, we think of it that way sometimes. Like we have a very multicultural church, but have you ever noticed how people from Ethnicities will look out for those ethnicities, sometimes before other ethnicities. Am I right? It's like we look at people that look similar and we say, okay, maybe they might be my neighbor. Certainly they will be my neighbor before they will be my neighbor. And for them, it wasn't just 
ethnicity that made the difference. A neighbor was a practicing Jew. A practicing Jew would have been someone who, like him, was keeping all the rules, were defined by their rule book. So, in following this principle of loving God and loving your neighbor, this gentleman, an expert in the law, following the way they understood the law, could have easily ignored anyone whom he deemed not completely following the same rules. It's funny, it kind of sounds silly to me until we start looking around and noticing how we do the same. How sometimes we will ignore people who have needs unless they are within our circle, our acceptable circle. And unfortunately, unless they are sometimes Adventist. And what a pity. The gentleman asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. A familiar one to you, but let's look at the details. He's not really confused as to who is his neighbor. In fact, he's convinced he understands that. The reason he rattles off this answer to Jesus so quickly is because he's convinced that he understands correctly. And when Jesus says, you've got the answer right, go and do it, that's where the rub comes. And the man says, I am doing it. Jesus says, you've got the answer correct. You figured it out, but now I want you to live it. And the man says, I am living it. Suddenly, when Jesus says, I need you to go live it, something happens inside, and he feels, uh, 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 he feels under the judgment. We call it conviction. And trying to get away from that, he says, I am living it. Just who exactly is my neighbor? Because I think I've got that one covered. And then Jesus begins with a story. You remember the story? Let's follow along, please. With, go with me. Jesus says in reply, verse 30, chapter 10, book of Luke. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. You've heard the story. You've probably seen, has anybody seen the VeggieTales version? It's fabulous. I, I love it. The cucumber is going down and he gets assaulted and they put his head in the sand and Everybody seen it? You guys seen it, right? Okay, I love that. Um, it's a familiar story. Uh, the children's version is a lot less graphic, but notice at the details here. Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to, to Jericho, literally about 3,000 foot in elevation change, and when he fell into the hands of robbers, and notice this, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and left him half dead. Now, for the people listening in the story, um, uh, theologians say it's quite possible that this was actually a true story, something that had actually happened, and, and quite possible that there were people in the audience that may have heard the story or knew someone in the story. But even without that, just looking at the details as a story, Jesus seems pretty graphic here. He says, they beat him and stripped him of his clothes. Not only did they take his possessions, they were trying to take this man's dignity. That's important. And they beat him up so bad that he was half dead. Now, for you and me, we hear stories like this all the time. Brutal and vicious crimes are committed all the time around us, so much so that we're sometimes desensitized to them. Just flashes through the news. Gunmen opens fire. Uh, people being uh, brutalized, murdered, raped, and it just kind of passes through. But Jesus wants to draw attention to the condition of the person. He says he was beaten, took his, his stuff, 
and they left him half dead. Not uncommon, vicious, but not uncommon. And quite possibly, something that happened regularly. This was a very dangerous road that Jesus points to. Now, I don't know what the most dangerous road or place to be in San Diego is. Anyone? Skyline? Anyone? Tell me so I can avoid it, please. 31st and Clay? Okay, see, I don't know, but I, I, I try to avoid, you know, certain places. I'm not that familiar with San Diego. But the most dangerous road or dangerous place you can be in, that's what Jesus is describing. See, that this journey from, from, from Jerusalem to Jericho was, was, um, it, it was through a sort of a creek, if you will, where the mountains had uh, given way and they would essentially be traveling down. And, and, and there was lots of rocks and caves and places for thieves to hide out. And they would find somebody alone like this man, easy prey. But rather than just steal his stuff, hold him at knife point or gun point, they actually beat him. It's important to notice here the details. Jesus says these people were evil, and they didn't just take his stuff. They wanted to strip him of his dignity. And rather than just kill him, they left him to suffer. And Jesus says that a priest happened to be going down the same road And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. You've heard the story, right? Uh, Just a little bit of background information. There was probably thousands of priests that lived in Jericho and commuted to Jerusalem. The trip was about 17 miles or so, and there was probably a number of them who would have gone to Jerusalem, perhaps on a special day, a holiday, or a feast, and would, at the end of that, make a return trip down back home. It's quite possible that the people listening may have actually done something very similar to this. And and Jesus says, a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man pass, and he passed by on the other side. Now, uh, your version might say something slightly different, but the, uh, the picture is just the same. He sees the man, maybe from a distance, or maybe up ahead, and he decides to just kind of go around him. And he just keeps going on his way. Now, this would have drawn a gasp in the audience. Maybe not necessarily in ours, but in the audience, they would have said, would a priest? Because because a priest is supposed to be someone who represents God. And a priest seeing Jesus describing the situation, a man half beaten, bloodied up, and, and left there to die, just ignoring the situation and passing by, Seems scandalous. And yet it's possible that the people in the audience would have kind of reasoned it out. They would have said something like, well, you know, the man was dying, and and what if he did die? And if the priest came along and he touched him, that would be illegal. That would be breaking the loving God with all your strength because according to the rules, a priest was not allowed to touch a dead body unless it was an immediate family member. So if this was a stranger and the priest went down and touched it, it was a dead body, he would defile himself, break the rules, break the law. So there were probably people in the audience who said, well, I could understand that. Maybe the priest was on his way somewhere important. Maybe he was on an emergency call somewhere. There were probably people in the audience doing uh, uh, ethical gymnastics, kind of the way you and I do it. 
when we see somebody in need and we just kind of go around it. And we say things like, well, uh, somebody will help them. I'm sure they have a cell phone. Somebody's probably already dialed 911. Or maybe, what can I do? Or maybe there are people that depend on me. And, or maybe he's not my responsibility. Jesus continued and he said, So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A closer look at the Greek here says that the Levite did something a little bit different from the priest. The priest noticed him far away and just kind of went around him. The Levite actually came closer and probably took the scene in before choosing to go around. He probably got closer and examined the situation a little bit better. Maybe he got close enough to see the man's face and, and, and close enough to sense that the man was close to death before leaving. This would have again drawn some <gasps> in the audience because people would say, why don't they help? And yet, uh, along with those ahs and oohs, People in the congregation would have said, well, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure he had his reasons. Maybe he looked, like you and I do, and said, I probably couldn't help anyway. So why don't I just keep going? What am I going to do? The Levites, in a tradition of religious leaders, handed down from generation to generation, knew things about the law, but he wasn't a doctor. So he probably came, surveyed the scene a little, and with his, with his limited understanding said, oh, this man really needs a doctor, and I am not a doctor, so there's probably nothing I can do in this situation. Let me just keep going on my way. And as Jesus begins to tell the story, sure, there were people saying, mm, that's not bad, but I could understand why. In the same way that you and I excuse our own decisions not to help people across our paths in need. And Jesus says, Finally, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him, and he went to him, banished his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to a inn and took care of him. Now, this would have drawn much more significant oohs and ahs in the audience because it doesn't make any sense to us, but for them, a Samaritan was worst of the worst. The closest thing we can think of here would be an Al somebody from Al-Qaeda, somebody that Americans just have a <gasps> against, like the worst possible people on the planet, a jihadist or something like that where the, the public consciousness is reviled by the thought of someone from this society. A Samaritan to a Jew was like that. Uh, in fact, you've known, because you've heard, they were considered worse than dogs by, by, by the Jews, even though they were actually ethnically cousins. And Jesus says a Samaritan is, is passing by, and it's not out of the realm of possibility, because Samaria was the next-door neighbor, country-wise. Then this man was probably making his own way, a businessman traveling from place to place. And Jesus says, a Samaritan came by. And as the people are listening, they're thinking, okay, surely a Samaritan just kept on going because they're the worst of the worst. They, are, they have no conscience. They have no knowledge of who God is. They don't follow the rules. But Jesus says, but the Samaritan saw the man, and then he did something else. He took pity on him. 
The phrase fascinates me a little bit. Because when Jesus is saying it, it's more like, it's not pity so much as it is compassion. <clears throat> Think about it nowadays. Uh, nobody likes to be pitied, right? In fact, people like to say, I don't, want your, I don't, need, your, I don't need your pity. But in, in this expression here, pity is like compassion. And, and, and pity and compassion in this case are uh, sensing a need and moving towards action. See, the priest saw the need, but it never permeated any part of his heart, mind, soul, strength. Nor did he see this man as a neighbor. The Levite came by, and it permeated his mind. And he saw it, but it did not get down into his heart. So he kept going. But the Samaritan looks, stops, and his heart begins to move. And when his heart begins to move, his hands follow. And the Bible tells us that he bandaged his wounds, put the man in his donkey, rather than ride the donkey himself, put the man in, and took him down to an inn, and there took care of him. The next day, that means he spent the night with this wounded stranger in a hotel. And the next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. This would have been the equivalent to two days' wages, a couple hundred dollars perhaps at least. And he said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you might have. He left this credit card. He said, look, I need to go continue on my business, but you make sure this man gets well, and here's my credit card, and you will get paid for your expenses. And then Jesus says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Jesus tells the story. You've heard the story of your life probably. And then Jesus says, now to the expert law, okay. You asked me who is my neighbor, and I'm asking you who was a neighbor to this man. Now the lawyer suddenly felt trapped. What could he say? He wanted to say the priest because that was the equivalent of who he was. He wanted to answer Jesus' questions about justice by putting himself in a position of exoneration. He would have liked to say the Levite because that would have been uh, someone in his realm. But he couldn't. Jesus says, who, which of these three was a neighbor? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. But he couldn't deny what the Samaritan did. And he said, the one who had mercy on him. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do the same. Fascinating, right? And troubling. See, because as a, as, a, as a modern day individual, I look at the story and, and, and you and I do the same thing and we think, okay, I like it, it's cute, but it's really unrealistic, Pastor. I mean, which one of us is going to pull over at a crime site and bandage up a victim? Which one of us is going to take a stranger who's just been stabbed, wounded, and spend the night in a hotel with him and then leave our credit card. 
We're not going to do it. Why not? Because, Pastor, this is, we live in today's world. That's ancient times. You could do something like that, but, but not now. Besides, I have kids at home. A wife, what if something happens to me? Who's going to take care of them? Yes, it sounds extreme. Sounds, sounds clearly out of the realm of possibility. And I think in trying to understand or, or be, be uh, um, uh, very direct with the words here, we find a way to excuse ourselves from the principle. By looking at the story and then saying, I don't think that would fly nowadays. We have found a way as, at Seventh-day Adventist as a church to remove ourselves completely, not just from the story and the specifics of it, but from the principle that it holds when Jesus says, go and do likewise. See, let me tell you how this works. The gentleman said, who is my neighbor? He was trying to say, define for me something that I can do. Give me a target. Who is it that I have to look after? Pastor, who should I? Okay, give me somebody, and then I'll do that, and I'll be done with it. And Jesus says, not who is my neighbor. He doesn't give a target. He says, who was being a neighbor? The lawyer asked for a noun. Give me the name. Give me a people group. Give me someone. And Jesus says a verb. Who was being a neighbor? See, this is the difference between religion, Adventism, and Christianity. Religion is like a noun. Even Adventism with its theology can sometimes be defined as a noun. But Christianity is a verb. Being like Christ. It's not about one specific set of do's and don'ts or a specific set of rules. It's about living this way. Jesus says, go and do the same. You know what that means? That if all you and I do is talk about it and never do anything, then we've reduced Christianity to a noun and removed Jesus, the person, completely from it. And you see, that bothers me, troubles me, myself as a person and as a leader of this church. There has to be something more than just sitting here and saying we love Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. There has to be something more than just caring for one another and defining who is my neighbor by the people that are within my acceptable circle. There has to be more. Because the person of Jesus Christ demands more. We want to control Christianity. We want it defined. We want it spelled out. Pastor, what can I do? What I'm not allowed to do? Give me an answer. Give me a definition. And Jesus says, it is a person. Living, breathing. You want to live eternally? You have to start by living presently. Do this and you will live. Now don't get me wrong. No one is saying that you have to do this to earn it. No, doing this is an expression of being it. 
Having been loved by God, having been saved by God through the sacrifice and the willingness of Jesus Christ, we are now invited to share in that same life. Not to simply say, I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But to define our life in action, supporting this belief. What does this mean for you and me? It means we've got to take a really hard look. I'm being serious. We've got to take a really hard look at what you are doing as an individual and what we as a church are doing to support these claims. Because here's the problem, friends. It doesn't matter how loud we shout that we are the remnant church and that we have all the right beliefs. When the rest of humanity is on the side of the road, beaten down, stripped of their dignity, and we just walk around the side, we make ourselves look just as foolish as the priest and the Levite in the story. And just as irrelevant. Imagine this priest then showing up on the scene and saying, no, wait, 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 wait. there's a reason for that. I, I had to do this, I had to do that. Coming up with excuses for why he did not stop and take compassion and pity on this man. And the rest of the crowd would look at him with... That's what we sound like, by the way. That's exactly what we sound like when we try to explain to the rest of the world why we watch and we remain motionless. While we are aware of needs and aware of situations and of hurting, and we just stand and say, I'll pray for you. God bless you. May the Lord keep watch over you. And Jesus says, go and do something about it. We've got to take a long, hard look at ourselves. The rest of the world is waiting. It may be people right in your own community. Maybe even in your own family that have been stripped of their dignity and need you to care. People at your job. You know what? It might even be people sitting right among you that you just, hello, happy Sabbath as your way to get around. But they need somebody to care. Am I right? Are you going to let this just stay in your head or permeate your heart and your soul? I pray that we as a church would become not talkers, just talk. We're pretty good at that. In fact, I need to stop talking right now. But I pray that we'd be doers of the will of God.